Good morning. Today's passage comes from Isaiah 13 and 14. So behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the people in fury and unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution." The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Thanks, Forrest. Good morning. How's your back? Getting a little tired of shoveling? Looks like we're not quite done yet, huh? Well, our day and age has been called by some the age of anxiety. Daniel Smith says this, It's undeniable that ours is an age in which an enormous and growing number of people suffer from anxiety. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxiety disorders now affect 18% of the adult population in the United States, or about 40 million people. It's about almost one in five. This makes anxiety the most common psychiatric complaint by a wide margin, and one for which we are increasingly well-medicated. But that's just the clinically diagnosed disorder. See, I think this anxiety, fear, is something that affects every one of us. American society, in fact, trains us all to live with a level of anxiety. Have you noticed that? It's part of the plan. News broadcasts and newspapers, news outlets, online news, they have a vested interest in creating anxiety in you, in giving the news in such a way that you feel more anxious so that you want to tune in next time so you aren't surprised by the next tragedy that might, might happen to you. And so we check the next thing. We don't want to miss out. We're afraid the anxiety rises and they sell products and they get our attention. And we learn quickly from our culture that we should be really anxious about any slight drop in the market or any kind of change in the price of oil or 
any kind of new terrorism attack somewhere or a rise in violent crime or a political stalemate or whatever it might be, we are trained by our culture that we should be anxious about it. I have to confess that I've been well-trained, as probably all of us have in this room, so that when there's a slight change in the stock market, I feel the anxiety rise. When there's a drop, when there's a threat of some kind that might happen way out there somewhere, I feel the anxiety begin to rise. When I feel a new ache or a pain, oh no, could it be cancer? We're trained to be anxious about every little thing we all have. Yesterday in the paper, it listed 10 major conflicts we should be worried about in 2017 throughout the world. And it is. It's a crazy world out there. But it basically said we should be anxious and concerned, fearful about these conflicts going on in the world. So that's the world in which we live in. And yet, in contrast... Jesus says things like this, John 14, verse 27, where he says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, oh, that's what I want, but it, can that be? Can we live as people who are not fearful? Who truly have the kind of peace that Jesus offers us? Well, I believe we can. I believe Jesus wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it. If he didn't offer that to us. And God wants us to live lives that are not overwhelmed by anxiety and fear. In fact, there's a reason that do not fear is the most common command throughout the Bible. Well, Judah... The nation of Judah, the little nation of Judah in Isaiah's day had reason to be anxious. Assyria was this huge, domineering, cruel nation north of them that had already wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, had wiped out anybody who'd stood in their path, and they were coming after Judah. Besides Assyria, there were all these other nations around Judah that wanted them gone, that wanted them destroyed, much like Israel today, surrounded by nations that want them gone and want them destroyed. So the temptation for Judah was to look around and find somebody to make an alliance with, somebody that they could trust in that was stronger than them, who they could feel safe and secure because of this alliance. It's a challenge for us. Do we trust in some human or some nation or some army or some idol, some thing out there that we think will be strong enough to protect us? Is that where we put our trust? Or do we put our trust in the Lord? It really is a choice that's laid out before us in the scriptures over and over again. That was the challenge for Judah as this little nation, but it's also the challenge for us today. Where will we put our trust? Will we trust in Jesus or will we trust in something else we think can keep us secure and safe? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we look together at these 
passages from the book of Isaiah. We confess that too often we trust in other things besides you that we think will somehow keep us safe and secure. Lord, may by the power of your spirit, you open our hearts to see where we trust in other things that we might repent and turn our trust to you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, do your work in us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these couple of chapters we're looking at today, chapters 13 and 14 in the book of Isaiah, I want to look at three truths that jump out for us. Truths that if we hang on to them and begin to act as though they're true, will help us face whatever might come our way in the future. Now, as we know, as we just sung about, there's no guarantee that life's going to go smoothly no matter how much we trust God, right? Life will be hard. That's part of life on earth. But there are some promises of God that we can hang on to that will give us courage and confidence and take away our anxiety and give us peace in an uncertain world. The first I want to highlight is whatever you put your trust in other than God will eventually fail you. See, that's the truth. We need to really get into our minds because we so easily trust other things other than God. So we need to really know deep down in our hearts that whatever we put our trust in other than God will eventually fail us. For Judah, one of the threats that they were experiencing at this time as Isaiah was writing was from Babylon. Now, Babylon was not a major player at this point. Assyria was the dominant nation. And in fact, Babylon was under Assyrian control. But Babylon was one of the many other nations out there that, as Judah heard about them, they were fearful. There was something that they were concerned about. The people of Judah lived with constant fear of attack by somebody, especially Assyria, but others as well. Assyria had wiped out the northern kingdom already of Israel. But other nations were lurking out there. And Judah did not have a very good track record at this point. I don't know if you remember back when we preached through Isaiah 7 how King Ahaz, the king of Judah, was afraid because because the couple of nations right above them, Israel and Ammon, the Ammonites, were were arrayed against them, and they were had made a pact, and they were coming after the nation of Judah. And Ahaz was afraid, so Isaiah came to him and said, "Hey, you know what? God wants you to trust Him, and in fact." You can choose any sign you want. If you choose a sign, God will show you that you can trust in him. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And Isaiah said, I'll give you a sign anyway. The young maiden will be with child. It was Isaiah's own wife, but it was also a prophecy of the Messiah to come. And it was a sign to Ahaz that you could trust God, that you don't have to fear these other nations. But what did Ahaz do? He said, oh, no. I'm afraid. So he sent a whole bunch of gold up to Assyria, the big nation above those two nations, so that Assyria would come down and wipe out those two nations, which they did. But this nation that Ahaz made alliance with also came against Judah. You see, the things you put your trust in will eventually fail you. Hezekiah, a few years later, did the same. He put his trust in Babylon. He wanted to show off how much wealth he had and how wonderful he was. And God said, don't put your trust in Babylon. Don't show off what you have. Don't try to impress them. 
But what happened? He tried to put his trust in Babylon. And what happened? Babylon came and wiped out the kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. You see, God's trying to teach Judah a lesson. He's trying to teach them a truth. And that is, whatever you put your trust in other than God will fail you. Now, for us, we don't tend to put our trust in other nations because, hey, we're the most powerful nation on earth, right? So we're not afraid of other nations. But what do we here in America tend to put our trust in that we think will provide us with safety and security? Let me suggest to you one of the biggest ones, because we live in a consumer economy in this world, is, is money. We are so tempted to put our trust in money and and think that that's going to provide us security and safety in this world. See, that's the way our world functions. But honestly, if we just open our eyes and say, is that true? Can money really give us security? And of course, there's plenty of extreme examples like a Howard Hughes who had all the money, more money than he could ever use. And what did it do for him? It made him paranoid. It essentially destroyed his life because he was so terrified that somebody would try to take it away from him. You see, when you put your trust in something, it will eventually fail you. Think about lottery winners. Does it make their lives better when they win millions of dollars? Read the stories. Their lives are terrible and they're afraid because everybody's out to use them and get from them and they lose their friendships and it's It's a mess that happens when you put your trust in money. What about status? We think, hey, if we can just, uh, I'll feel secure in my life if, if I can get people to look up to me and think I'm terrific and wonderful and a celebrity. But again, open your eyes. Look at the reality. Look at the celebrities in our world. What kind of lives do they lead? By and large, they're a mess. Their marriages are a mess. They're full of anxiety. They live on drugs and medication and on and on. Status cannot satisfy you. George MacDonald, in one of his novels, says this about his character, Paul Faber. He did not realize how much of his misery was brought on by the growing dread of the judgments of people he despised. His reputation, his pride, and his own goodness was everything to him. It had been the thing which had kept him from needing anyone else or needing the God of the weak. It had been his own form of salvation. So notice his trust is in other people, but also in his own self, in his own ability to be good. But that was collapsing. He despised the judgments that would all, they would all make against him at his moral failure that had happened. The collapse, as they viewed it, of his ideal life. Had he known how much the opinions of those he looked down on mattered to him, he would have been all the more miserable and would have scorned himself for it. But he was not aware of the cause of his own misery. What about your health? Is that where you find security? If I can just stay healthy, if I can just take enough vitamins, if I can just work out enough, if I can just make sure my health's okay, then life will be okay. That's one of the idols. That's one of the things we trust in America, isn't it? But again, if you just open your eyes, you realize, wow, we're not in control. Anything can hit us all at once. Just met with a friend this week who's been 
hit by a cancer diagnosis that spread through his body and he's worked so hard to stay healthy and he's been hit with this blow of, I'm not in control. You know what it's done for him though? It's forced him to trust God in a deeper way than he ever has as his idol is being taken from him. If our idol is ourselves, like Paul Faber, where we trust in our own goodness, our ability to control life, our ability to make life work, If we open our eyes, we realize we're not in control. We enter the world helpless. We leave the world helpless. But what we need to realize is we really can't control our lives all the way through. We need to trust God. So the message to Judah and to us is whatever you put your trust in other than God will eventually fail you. We need to really get that. The second truth we can see in these passages is that God controls your future. God controls your future. In chapter 13, 1 through 5, a mighty army is gathering. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that may enter the doors of the nobles. I've commanded my consecrated ones. I've even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. There's a mighty army gathering against Babylon. Babylon will be wiped out. And yet Israel's this tiny country and they look at Babylon and a hundred years after this, Babylon became the greatest nation on earth. They were mighty and powerful. And yet God says, I'm raising an army. They don't control life. I do. And as we read carefully this passage about Babylon And God's judgment on them. Notice the things that God judges them for. Verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. Verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. As God gives this prophecy about Babylon being judged and being destroyed, he highlights the things that God opposes in mankind. He says, first, sinners. The word sin, hata, in the Hebrew has the idea of missing the mark, that you're shooting at a target, but you miss. He's talking about that, that part of us as human beings where We just don't live out what God's called us to do and to be. We basically just do our own thing instead of live out the calling that God has given every one of us. And God opposes that. God judges that. That's missing the mark. That's sin. The second word that's used in those verses to talk about what God's opposed to is wickedness or evil. Now, this is used in many contexts as the opposite of good or the opposite of shalom. It's it's that rebellious part of us that says, I want to do my own thing. I know what's right, but I want to do my own thing, much like the picture up here on the left. Until we see that that's a part of who we are, we'll never really trust God fully, that we are rebels at heart at times. The third thing that It says God is going to judge Babylon and the world for is haughtiness, arrogance, or pride. 
You see, God opposes the proud, those who depend on themselves, those who put themselves first. And over in chapter 14, there's this amazing passage that describes that, that has sometimes been used to describe, wonder if it's talking about Satan, but it's really talking about mankind in general. Verse 12 of chapter 14, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Notice the next verse. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, (laughs) to the recesses of the pit. But hear that pride, that sense of, I want to stay on the throne of my life. I want to reign. I, 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 I. And let me say that that pride, that self-dependence, is something that God always opposes. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we need to face the fact that we are all proud. David Roper puts it this way. The fundamental problem of the human race is that we are a proud people. We want everything to center on us. I'm the only thing that matters in the world. And by extension, my kind are the only kind that matter. So if someone comes from another culture or the color of their skin is different or they're not as educated, we say, ha, well, they're not my kind. See, that's an extension of pride where we judge others and condemn others. But Jesus is contrasted with that, isn't he? That whole attitude of I, I, I. Because Jesus, though he was Lord of the universe, showed us the way of humility. He didn't trust in things. He didn't look for status. When people tried to make him a king, he went and hid in the wilderness. He didn't care what people thought about him. He didn't care about money. He didn't try to gain status. He just depended on his father for everything. You know, if we're honest, as we think about these three things that God is judging Babylon and the world for, they're in all of us, aren't they? You know, we we miss the mark. We don't live out our calling that God's given us. We we have times of just outright rebellion where we say, I want to feel good right now, God, and I know that's not what you want, but I'm going to do my own thing. And we have times of pride where we we just want to run our own life and stay in control rather than relinquish and surrender the control to God. And let me just say, you know, we teach a lot of grace in this church and we should. God is amazing and our standing before God is completely by grace because of Jesus. But understand these things that are in you, God opposes. And God will work to root them out of you especially the pride that keeps you from trusting him. And he will bring Assyria and Babylon and whatever it takes to root out our self-dependence so that we will learn to trust him and him alone so that we can have life and peace, shalom, what he offers us. And then there's a remarkable prophecy in verse 17 and following of chapter 13, where it says, Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even 
have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. Now understand, this prophecy was given almost 200 years before Babylon was destroyed. And the Medes were kind of nobody at the time the prophecy was given. But this prophecy says, I'm going to raise up the Medes, and the Medes are going to destroy Babylon. Now, Babylon, at that point, was the most powerful nation on earth. And the city of Babylon that it's describing here was an immense fortress. Huge, thick walls. It was impenetrable. And at one point, the Medes came up, and they were going to attack Babylon, but there was nothing they could do. And the Babylons were so unafraid of the Mede army coming, the Persian Mede army, with Cyrus leading it, that they had a huge feast and ignored even protecting the walls. But God prophesied that Babylon's going to fall by the Medes in an instant. What happened? Well, the Medes were pretty clever. See, the Euphrates River went right through the city of Babylon, this massive, huge, greatest city, one of the greatest cities ever been built on earth. And when the river went through, they put down these metal uh, bars to protect people from getting in on boats or anything that went most of the way down into the river. So what did the Medes do? They diverted the Euphrates River upstream so that the river dried up and under these bars, the whole army of the Medes and Persians walked into the city and took the city with almost no fight at all. God's so much more powerful than the things we're afraid of, brothers and sisters. We're we're terrified of what might happen. And what God's trying to teach Judah and trying to teach us is that he is in control. He will take care of ISIS. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of violence and evil and Babylon. You may not see how. It may look bad for a time, But God's called you to trust in him and realize he is in control. Nothing happens outside the control of the blessed controller. One of my favorite rides at Disneyland is Space Mountain. How many of you have been on Space Mountain? A lot of you. One thing about Space Mountain is it's, you know, you you go up, but it's completely in the dark, right? And you're on this ride and you're going, you have no idea what's coming. And you get jerked around and back and forth. And it's a scary ride. I remember the first time I went on it, it's like, I don't know what's coming. But I really wasn't scared. I wasn't terrified. I wasn't afraid something bad was going to happen to me. Why? Because I knew someone had designed that ride and was in control of the ride so that the car I was in would stay on the tracks and eventually get to my destination. To me, that's a good analogy of life. We can't see what's coming. We try to anticipate it. We try to turn the light on. We try to figure it out. But to be honest, much of it is we get jerked around, right? The next thing happens. And, and, but yet trusting God means that we realize there's a designer who's in control and will keep the car on the tracks. So we need not fear what's coming, brothers and sisters. God doesn't want us to live in anxiety. He gives us a peace because we can trust that he's in control. God controls your future. And no matter how hard we try to change the route, 
(laughs) or grip harder on the car or grip the person next to us or whatever we try to do to change the plan. God is working out his plan. God controls your future and wants us to sit back and enjoy the ride. Besides, most of what we fear is never going to happen, right? (laughs) They've done studies on what are you afraid of, and they've checked it all out, and they've looked at all the things that people are worried about and afraid of, and they say close to 98, 99% of what we worry about never happens. What a waste of energy, right? So God says, trust me. God's in control of our future. We need not fear what's coming, even though we can't see what it is. The third truth that he wants us to hang on to, I believe, from these passages is that God promises rest for those who trust in him. God promises rest for those who trust in him. The beginning of chapter 14 is a wonderful picture, I think, of rest for the nation of Judah. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take their will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captives captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in that day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you've been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, ha, (laughs) Babylon, what I was afraid of is totally wiped out. It's gone. It's been destroyed. It's a wonderful picture of rest that he's given Jacob here. He's giving Judah here. It's not just protection from the enemies, right? If you read it carefully, what he's saying is all those people you're afraid of out there are actually going to come and serve you. (laughs) You will reign over them, the things you're afraid of. You will reign over them. That's what God wants us to be as people who reign in life. He's freed us from sin so that we could reign in life and not live in fear. Romans 5. Verse 17 says this, For by the transgression of the one, that's Adam's sin, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 talks about how God has created us to be a people who are to reign in life. Do you reign in life? You see, the more we know and trust Jesus, the more we will reign over the very things we're afraid of. And the sin and the fear and the idols will no longer control us. Money, status, lust, power. We will reign over them. That's God's plan. And this control is pictured in this taunt that you go on to read in chapter 14, where Judah is just mocking Babylon, the most powerful nation on earth. Ha! Babylon, you're just wiped out. You think you're so great. You're not so great. What God is trying to teach Judah is that rest is coming. And as you trust in me, you can begin to experience rest and peace in your life now, the peace that Jesus offers us. As we learn more and more to not trust things other than God, but we learn to put our trust in him. 
one of my idols, and I've talked about this a lot, one of the things that I've struggled with in my own life is, is the approval of others, especially people in authority. And, and that's been something that I've had to work on. And as God has begun to break me more of that, uh, I've seen a huge change from being controlled by that, from it reigning over me where I'm just concerned about pleasing everybody around me, to as God through counseling, through life, through the things God's brought into my life, he's freed me from that in a way so that I can see ways in which I reign over that now. What do I mean by that? I've learned that God is trustworthy and good no matter what other people think of me. And that even when people reject me or whatever it might be, I can reign over that and still give myself to them and seek to love them and bless them even when I'm not getting the approval that I used to be enslaved to. Do you understand how God wants us to reign over those things we fear? Those idols we cling to. Take money. If you, if you try to cling to money as your security, then you're going to be a slave to every little variation in your bank account or whatever happens or whatever breaks down in your house or whatever it might be, you'll just be a slave to that. But as you learn to trust in God that he's in control and he'll keep you on the tracks and he'll get you where you need to be and you learn to give that over to him, then you begin to reign over your money and you begin to use it to bless others and to give it away to care for others because you really trust that God is blessing you and is in control. You see, that's real shalom, that's rest, and that is real freedom in life, and that's where God wants to get us. Brothers and sisters, if we, if we look at the world, I agree, I agree, I admit, it's a scary place. And Judah was afraid. But God wanted them and wants us to hang on to these powerful truths to set us free so we can reign in life experience peace, experience rest in the midst of an uncertain world. As we remember that whatever we put our trust in other than God will always fail us. So let's let go of those things. When we remember that God is absolutely in control and he, though we can't see what's coming, he'll keep us on the tracks and get us where we need to be. And when we remember that God promises rest both now and in the future, to those who trust in him. May that encourage us to cling to him and trust him in 2017. Let's trust him this year, shall we? And let's seek refuge in him. Let's hang on to him and enjoy the ride, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that reminds us of who we really are in our rebellion. And how easily we trust in things other than you. We're just like Judah. But Lord, thank you for the offer of life. The offer of security. The offer of peace that you want us to have in the midst of a world that wants us to be anxious and afraid. May we be people who trust you in an uncertain world. May we do it by your grace, by your love, by your kindness, and by your presence in our lives and by your control of our future. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.